Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 29, The National Lab in Space. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, sometimes some of our partners. We bring them right here on the show to tell you all the coolest stuff about what's going on here at NASA. So today we're talking about the section of the International Space Station that's designated as a U.S. National Laboratory. We're talking with Patrick O'Neill, the Marketing and Communications Manager at the Center for Advancement of Science in Space, or CASIS. We had a great discussion about what it means to be a U.S. National Lab, how CASIS is bringing research from companies, research institutions, and government agencies to the space station, and the things we're learning that benefit humankind. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Patrick O'Neill. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. All right. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, especially because you are remote, right? You're not even here in Houston. You're calling in from Florida, right? I am over at Kennedy Space Center as we speak. Awesome. And that's where and that's where Casis is sort of housed. Is that is that where you guys are? Or are you kind of all over the place? Well, we, we actually have a couple of houses across the country. But uh, yes, in theory, this is kind of where our, our headquarters is based out of uh, in the Kennedy Space Center area, as well as in Melbourne, Florida. But we also have a uh, strong office presence just outside of Johnson Space Center in Houston. And then we have a few more offices that are, are sporadically placed throughout the country. Very cool. All right, so you're over at the Kennedy Space Center now. Uh, yeah, Kennedy Space Center right now. So how's the weather over there? The weather right now is uh, its a tad cold. We had a little cold front come through, so uh, it's nowhere near as bad as it is in places like the Northeast. But, you know, we actually had to turn the heat on, and that's uh, thats something that is a rare occurrence here down in Florida. Yeah, you know, I mean, over here, the weather has just been absolutely crazy. I'm sure you've been paying attention. But mm -hmm. this past week, I mean, we had, like, ice and freezing rain, and all the roads were covered in ice, and Houston just doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with that. So we just, you know, the center shut down. You know, yep. the South can't really deal with that stuff. And right now... Now it's freezing right now. I mean, we're in the studio and the studio is always cold, but it's like, you know, 30s right now, which is, I'm sure the people in the north are thinking, man, that guy is definitely a baby when it comes to the cold. But, uh, I, you know, when you're, when you're used to 60s and 70s in the, in the winter, this can definitely, this can definitely get to you. Well, you know, being in Florida right now, it's 55 when I hopped out of my car and everyone is bundled up as though, you know, it's 15 outside. <laughs> so, you know, I think that we are, are certainly living in, uh, in first world problems as well. <laughs> I've seen that before I've been to uh, it was an air show uh, out at Ellington Field one time and uh, it, it was it was low 60s and not a cloud in the sky absolutely crystal clear day and I was I was wearing shorts and uh, and a t-shirt because the sun was beating and I thought it was a hot day especially on the tarmac but you had folks that were bundled up as if it was a cold winter day and I could not believe it low 60s and mm -hmm. they were bundled up it was crazy can't take them anywhere. <laughs> okay, but we're uh, we're not connecting, you know, from uh, across from Houston to Kennedy to talk about the weather. We're we're here to talk about the U.S. National Laboratory, and uh, you, being the marketing and communications manager of Cases, have a pretty good understanding of of just Cases as a whole. So why don't we just talk about that? You know, what is what is Cases? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, first and foremost, CASIS stands for the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space. Since we are kind of a brainchild of NASA, and since NASA equally likes to work in the world of acronyms, we decided to go out there and call ourselves CASIS. Good call. Uh, and so in 2011, we were tasked with managing the U.S. National Laboratory on board the International Space Station. Okay. And so that means what? Managing, what, what is the U.S. National Laboratory? What is it that you say you do here? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> so when, we, when I say that we manage the U.S. National Lab and the International Space Station, that means that we get to select, broker, manifest, and then promote the research that goes on the U.S. National Lab portion of the flight manifest. And so what do I mean by flight manifest is uh, on a given resupply mission to send research and supplies to the station, uh, there will be up to 50 percent of of that research allocation that is designated as U.S. National Laboratory-based research. And so we get that 50%. So we pick and choose the research that goes up. And within my role, I get to work alongside uh, you and other folks at NASA to help communicate uh, the benefits of the research that are going that is going to the space station. Okay, I see. So the U.S. National Lab is, is a NASA thing. And then CASIS is the you know, is the industry that manages it, I guess. I, I would say that the U.S. National Laboratory is a U.S. thing. U.S. Um, thing, I see. And so a little bit of background on how the space station ended up becoming a national laboratory. Uh, in 2005, Congress, in their in their infinite wisdom, they were looking at all the research that was happening on the space station, and, you know, it was, it was catered towards NASA's exploratory endeavors, living and working in space, better understanding the human condition so that you can uh, do long-duration spaceflight or go beyond low-Earth orbit. And they said, that's terrific, and we're learning so much. But there's also so much more that we could be doing on the space station. What if we were to open it up to all sectors of the research community, whether that's Fortune 500 companies or innovative startups, academic researchers, student investigators? I mean, there's so much that we could do on the space station. So what if we turn it into a national laboratory and really kind of see what this thing is capable of from a research perspective uh, and see if we can't use the microgravity environment to benefit life on Earth? So in 2005, that's kind of how we got with this the, the, the concept of a national laboratory. And then in 2010, I want to say, uh, Congress worked with NASA saying, you know, we need to have a non uh, a non NASA entity, a, a a nonprofit organization manage the research on this U.S. national laboratory. And so in 2011, CASIS was selected by NASA to manage the national laboratory, and uh, we have been assuming management of the national labs since that time frame. There you go. Okay, so what was originally a laboratory for NASA to do NASA research now is opened up to, is it, is it anyone or is it just people in the U.S.? It's so, and that's a great question. It is open in theory to anyone. However, you have to have U.S. subsidiaries or U.S. Uh, interests involved. Uh, I so, I mean, there's there's a variety of companies that we work with that might have headquarters overseas. But you know, if it's a pharmaceutical company, I'll give you an example, like Merck Pharmaceuticals. Uh, I believe that they're based in theory overseas, but they have such a large footprint here in the United States. And so, we work with investigators that are based here in the U.S. I see. Okay. But then they can use, you know, they can go through cases. Cases will manage getting whatever research that they want to do up on the International Space Station uh, because it will eventually benefit the you know, U.S. citizens. Right. And, and, and what I would say, the caveat again is that the research that we manifest and broker and send to the space station and then send back down to the space station in some cases, uh, again, the caveat always has to be that there has to be a tangible benefit 
for uh, life here on Earth, as opposed to, again, NASA is much more focused on exploratory research endeavors. How about that? Okay, and you said 50%. That's that's a decent amount of research. So how that's, a, you... that's a pretty good chunk of change, right? Yeah, yeah, especially, I mean, it, you got that balance of, the, I guess, you know, there's a lot of human research that goes on the uh, uh, that the astronauts do to, this, to themselves, right, to understand what is happening to the human body in mm-hmm. space. And I'm sure there's other other human research elements that are being done for people here on Earth, right? Or maybe it, it kind of even translates just the NASA studies and the and the U.S. National Lab studies. Sure. So, so what I would say is think about a lot of the research that was happening on the space station or even with the shuttle program back in the day that was focused on uh, the, the astronauts and kind of using them as the guinea pigs, so to speak. Um, but then you now have... So you're able to understand basic concepts of, of life science research or, or how bodies adapt in, or in, in a microgravity environment. So a lot of the pre-research that was done has now set the foundation for a lot of the research that is going up uh, from pharmaceutical companies. So NASA really set or, or paved the way for a lot of the research that is going up now uh, because now it's much more targeted, I think, based on a lot of the early findings that were that were had with astronauts in, in space for extended period of times. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, it kind of benefits everyone in both Absolutely. ways, right? So you, you, yep. you get you know the citizens, but then also the astronauts. There you go. Um, okay. So so let's talk about just you know CASIS and NASA. So you said you know Congress decided there needed to be a nonprofit uh, to manage all of this, so NASA didn't have to do it, and you know we can build this sort of industry of research that goes up into microgravity and that's where CASIS comes in. So where's the, how's the relationship there with with NASA and CASIS and then with and you said it was research partners, industry, mm-hmm. H- how does that all work? So what I would say first and foremost is that, you know, NASA and CASIS, you know, we, we truly like to use the concept that we are powered through partnership. Everything that we do, and, and, and I talk with, with your team on a daily basis, headquarters, and, and, you know, so from a PR perspective, there's an awful lot of strategy in place from a communication perspective. There is equally the same thing from a program science perspective. You know, what are kind of the goals and objectives that we're all collectively trying to do so that we can communicate effectively uh, to the public and to the research community that they can take advantage of this incredible research platform. So, you know, there is an awful lot of, of, of back and forth that happens on a daily basis between our collective organizations. And it's all done, again, with the intention of communicating about the science now, as well as the opportunities that might exist for researchers down the road. So are, is CASIS the one that actually goes out and finds, finds people to bring research to the U.S. National Lab? That's one of our jobs, and you know I'm sure that we'll talk a little bit more about maybe some of the other partners that are involved in helping to bring research to the space station and the National Lab in particular. But yes, that's one of the definite core functions of CASIS is to seek out uh, traditional partners, non-traditional partners, uh, to try to just educate people again on how it is that you know your company or your research institution could be benefited by sending their research to the space station. And you know what I would throw in as a caveat for that is not, and that's something that I have a chance to go and do frequently is 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 helping to uh, to tell that story of of sending research to station. You know, a lot of times when you go meet with the company, first thing that they sit there and say is, "Wow, that's really cool." 
But how expensive is this going to be? I mean, is this? I mean, it just seems like sending something to and from the space station. That's just going to be, you know, time intensive, labor intensive, and it's going to be cost prohibitive. And so, one of the great things that that has happened with the National Laboratory is that to send your research to the space station, to have the astronaut as your lab technician, to send the research back down. Those are costs that aren't passed over to the researcher. Those are costs that are not passed over to the particular company, because those are costs that you and I, as taxpayers of the America of the United States of America, have already made that investment into. So it's nowhere near as expensive to send your research to and from station as folks would would think. And now you're able to take advantage of it from a marketing and PR perspective. So especially if you're talking to to major companies, you know, it's not only what it is that you're going to be able to learn, but how is it that you're going to be able to capitalize on this to separate yourself from your competitors, saying that we are doing more to be as innovative as we possibly can. And what's more innovative than sending research to the International Space Station? Yeah. <laughs> but then, okay, so so you got this cost element, and it seems like there's a lot of cost that's absorbed. Uh, so that way it makes it, you're, like you not say, it's not cost prohibitive. You can actually do this, and it can be affordable, and you can get something out of it, especially from an innovative perspective. But then I'm sure... Is, you know, you as the marketing PR guy, you have a pitch for what is so great about microgravity, right? What is it that you can bring? What research can you bring to this microgravity environment, the only one that exists, and then, you know, accomplish what you need to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you kind of touched on it. I mean, you know, microgravity in and of itself. I mean, the fundamental variable that we are all familiar with here on Earth is gravity. It's mm-hmm. always around us at all times. I mean, there might be instances where you could potentially take it away, uh, but not not to the level that you can in a microgravity environment like the space station has. And so now, you know, you're able to really look at things in an entirely different dimension than you've ever looked at research previously. And it doesn't matter what type of research, life science, physical science, material science, uh, earth observation, remote sensing, technology development, all of these are, are scientific factors that here on Earth, you know, again, there's 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 gravity, whereas up there, absolutely no, you know, you don't have that same level of gravity, and you have an, an opportunity to be to have your research exposed to this microgravity environment for you know 30, 60, sometimes longer than that days, uh, and so from that, you know, what is it that you're able to learn when you are looking at things entirely different than you're used to in your typical laboratory setting? Sweet. Okay, so there's been a lot of research already that has been uh, sent up to the International Space Station, and there's been experiments that have been exposed to microgravity. So what are some of the things we're finding? What are some of the cool things that you can get out of sending your stuff to microgravity? Well, you know, I think we're going to need another podcast for that one. I mean, it's in, you know, it, but but again, I touched on it in my previous answer. It doesn't matter what type of scientific discipline you're focused on. I mean, microgravity has the ability to enable findings uh, that, that, you know, just, again, you're not going to find anywhere else. And one of the cool ones that came out last year, I want to say it was last year, um, was we brokered an investigation with Kentucky Space, and they sent planarian flatworms to the station. And they were looking to just kind of see how these these uh, these worms regenerated in a microgravity environment, and they got a pretty peculiar re- peculiar result when one of them came back with two heads, and hmm. you know something like that. It's just you know you you would just not think that that would be the case. And now all of a sudden you have these these worms on station for 30 days. They come back down and then they just decide that they want to regenerate in entirely different ways. Um, so that's that's a perfect example. Uh, we've sent 
a variety of rodent research investigations to the station, and we've done that for multiple reasons. I mean, first and foremost, rodents represent a model organism that you can take advantage of, um, and their growth pattern is nowhere near as as lengthy as ours. So if you're able to have rodents on station for 30 days, you know, that might be the vast majority of their adult life. And one of the reasons that you would send rodents up is based on using the astronauts in the past, you know, muscle wasting, uh, bone density loss are greatly accelerated in a microgravity environment. So it almost it almost truly accelerates that aging process, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so you're able to kind of do that similar type of research on a rodent, for instance, and if they're on station for 30 or 60 days, that might be, again, the vast majority of their adult lifespan because of the fact that they're in space and it kind of accelerates that growth or aging process. So what can you do from a muscle wasting or a bone density perspective when it comes to research? Um, and how can that potentially help the aging population here uh, on the ground? Or how can it help those that, uh, that have been wounded in battle? I mean, those are the types of research investigations that have been happening on station and will continue to happen on station uh, because it's all about trying to improve the care or the lifespan or the quality of life for those of us here on Earth. All right. Yeah, learning a lot, especially, and, and this is one of those examples that we were talking about earlier where this kind of goes both ways, right? So mm -hmm. you can learn about just what happens to bones and muscles in the microgravity environment and then get way more samples than you, or, or examples, so you can kind of learn from them and then kind of bring what you learn and then bring it down to um, Earth for research on stuff like, and I know one of them that comes to mind is uh, research on osteoporosis because yep. it's a big, you know, uh, bone disease. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, I'm sure when you say you take your research and you send it up to space, right, I'm sure it's not just you just kind of throw it in the lab, right? I'm sure it's it's a laboratory, so there are facilities there. So what sorts of things can researchers um, or facilities can can researchers put their experiments in? So, and I think that that's a great segue, uh, because to your point, it's not just as easy as just, you know, throwing it up there and, and seeing what happens. Anything that goes to the station, first and foremost, has to be sent up in flight-certified hardware. And <laughs> so, when I talked earlier about, you know, the flight up, the flight down, the astronaut is your lab technician, all of those are costs that are not passed over to the researcher. The So, then that leads to the question of, well, what is the out-of-pocket cost that's going to be passed over to the researcher? And it's sending your research up in that flight certified hardware and there are multiple companies uh, and think of and it's and this is one of the great things about station two is it's not just a research angle it's an opportunity for companies to be able to validate their research facilities uh, their you know their their ability to send research safely to and from uh, earth to a microgravity environment so it's it's really kind of spanning a lot of different areas of opportunity but as far as research facilities on station, you know, there's a lot of things that are very similar to that of your normal uh, lab here on the ground. I mean, so we talked a little bit about rodents. So we have a, a rodent research habitat. There's centrifuges. There's a 3D printer that is on station now. Uh, there is, uh, let's see, we have a microgravity glove box that enables a wide variety of scientific discipline to include using a furnace on station. We have an external platform. If you want to put research on the outside of the station and test it in the extreme environment of space, that is now available to you. Uh, there is a DNA sequencer on station. I mean, there's there's so much that's going on uh, that, you know, and again, it's, it's it's not dissimilar from a lot of other lab settings that you would that you would uh, conduct your research in on Earth. 
All right. Okay, so lots of different options, too. And there's there's a lot of cool ones, too. I mean, you, you can put your stuff outside the station and see mm-hmm. kind of what happens to it. I mean, I mean, I'm guessing from, like, a radiation perspective, maybe from a temperature perspective, yep. uh, lack of pressure or, you know, th- there's a lot of different things that you can you can find out. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and to your point, you know, temperature variation, uh, radiation levels, I mean, those, those are some of the big critical ones that, uh, that we, we talk about with prospective users of those. Those external platforms. So a lot of this, uh, a lot of the facilities and a lot of these kind of experiments, do they require uh, astronauts to kind of have hands-on experience or are there some that are just kind of running in the background? So that's, uh, first of all, that's, that's, a, that's a great segue as well too, because I think that one of the, one of the issues that we run into, both from a, a CASA standpoint, National Lab and NASA is, you know, you can only use the astronauts for so much time when yeah. they're on station. And so in a perfect world, is there is there a scenario where you're able to send research up into kind of a rack space where it's almost like a plug-and-play feature? It's a simplistic uh, environment where the astronaut just, again, pushes in this cartridge, so to speak, flips a switch, and the next thing you know, you have a science experiment that's going to be conducted for the next 30 days. So we have a mixture of both, where there are hands-on, more astronaut-intensive investigations an example of that would probably be something like rodent research or research that's being taken place in a microgravity glove box uh, or DNA sequencing. But then you also have uh, a, a couple of companies that have rack space on the space station. And uh, the two companies that come to mind are uh, Nanoracks and Space Tango. And think of that as facilities that are able that are in a position to enable uh, inquiries from life science to material science. And, and they just kind of go in this rack space, so to speak, and they kind of sit there for 30 days. And just it really depends on what the researcher is looking for. If they want to have a camera on the inside, if they want to have if they want to test uh, levels, if they want to, you know, have uh, a light on, things like that. I mean, all of those can be configured based on the needs of the researcher, but it's done with the intention to really simplify the process, get as much research up as possible, and not have to take away from all of the time that the astronauts are, are using on station for other, uh, other, other endeavors that they're involved with. Exactly. And I know crew time is always just a hot commodity because they have to do so much. I mean, just uh, coming up next week, they have to, and all of this week, they've really been preparing for um, a spacewalk, and mm-hmm. or, or I guess two this month, and it's just you know that that's a huge chunk of time that they have to prepare because you know spacewalks are are very I guess just labor intensive. They they're out there for six and a half hours. They got hours beforehand of prep, hours afterwards of debrief. It's just a it's a long day, and everything has to be coordinated down to like the minute. I guess you can even say second, but I'll just say minute. Uh, to make sure that the whole time is is absolutely maximized, so they dedicate all this time beforehand, and then that you know they don't have as much time for research because they have to do everything up there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no astronaut and then a lab technician and then a plumber. You know, they are all three of those things. So it's 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 crazy that all the what what they have to do so i guess that that's kind of helpful when things kind of run on their own but you're right there's stuff that you know if you're going to sequence dna you actually have to inject it you have to have an astronaut do go in the glove box and 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 put something in a dna sequencer or or actually you know work with the with with the rodents in the habitat so Mm -hmm. i mean finding that crew time is it can be a little bit challenging i'm at times i'm guessing right 
it, it can be, and and that's why you know we work in partnership with NASA to really kind of understand and identify uh, the projects that are coming down our pipeline. Conversely, with what it is that uh, is a priority for NASA, so that way, whenever we do send research up, we are able to maximize everyone's collective time. Okay, cool. So that that thought makes me think of, or kind of lead to the whole process of of getting research on board the space station, right? Mm-hmm. You, you said kind of your, your process. So so what is that like? Now, let's say you've gone up, you've connected with an industry or with a researcher, and they want to get something on the International Space Station. What does that look like? So in, in the way that it would work is, first and foremost, if you do want to send research to the space station, you got to submit a proposal. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have to submit a white paper that basically says, this is what I want to send to the space station. This is why I think that microgravity can enhance the findings of, of what it is that I'm presently doing on the ground. And so uh, we, we have this kind of open forum where we allow anybody to submit a white paper at any time, and then our team will evaluate that. And so as we are starting to evaluate these, uh, first and foremost, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, does it need microgravity? I mean, is this something that can be done in your lab settings or, you know, is it going to make sense to be done in a, in a microgravity environment on the space station? Mm-hmm. Uh, second of all, is it operationally feasible? Is it something that we can put into a facility that already exists on station? Is it something that's going to be safe to have be on the space station? We don't want to endanger the lives of the astronauts. So, uh, and then and then once we're able to kind of identify where this payload might end up going once it goes to station, then it passes over into kind of the, the meat and potatoes, which is the science portion of it. Okay, you know, what what is the science relevancy of this? What is the tangible impact for benefiting life on Earth? Um, and then all of these are, are, from a science perspective, evaluated from our science team as well as uh, subject matter experts that are not uh, CASIS employees. Because again, at the end of the day, we are good stewards. We want to be good stewards of this incredible research platform. You know, we don't want to be looked upon as just picking and choosing our favorite research from a Fortune 500 company. It's about science and science relevancy. And so once you kind of go through that process, portion, then it, it segues then into, uh, you know, working with NASA, working with hardware partners that, uh, again, I, we mentioned earlier, like the flight certified hardware portion. So, you know, t- teaming up the researcher with a flight certified hardware partner who can, you know, take that concept and morph it into an actual experiment that can go to station, then we manifest it, then it flies up, and then it gets, uh, the research gets conducted, and then in some instances, the research comes back down for further evaluation, and then in other instances, it either stays on station for an extended period of time, or eventually it will be put uh, into a, the Cygnus capsule, within, which then burns up in the, uh, the Earth's atmosphere when, uh, when all the research is done on orbital ATK missions. Okay. And then the way it gets back is uh, SpaceX, right? SpaceX right. is the return vehicle. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. So SpaceX is the return vehicle presently, uh, but then hopefully in a couple of years, uh, we will be able to have our friends over at Sierra Nevada, which will equally be in a position to send research back down to the research community. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they have a return capability too. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, a lot of different options. All right, so so you get this proposal, and then you get you're connected with flight hardware, so you can f- kind of fit your experiment in this flight hardware and make sure everything is going to be working. And mm-hmm. then you kind of work with uh, with a, a commercial resupply company to actually send it up to the space station, right? Right. So um, you know, think of think of SpaceX and orbital ATK is kind of the uh, the transportation to and from, but all of you know 
it's not as though we work directly with SpaceX or Orbital ATK. We actually work uh, directly with NASA to ah. identify the various payloads that are going to be going up. Because, again, at the, at the end of the day, there's only a finite amount of, uh, of payload space that we all have. And so it's working with NASA to understand the research priorities that they have on a particular mission and us then being able to sit there and say, okay, you know, we want to put these number of projects in. Uh, how is that going to coincide with, with the research that NASA wants to send on this, you know, called Orbital ATK mission? Okay, cool. Yeah, a lot of players in there. I mean, you got CASIS, NASA, commercial partners, you know, flight hardware providers, researchers, Fortune 500 companies. Oh, my gosh, this this can get pretty expansive. Is it? It's, uh, it's clear as mud, right? <laughs> Is it? Uh, so how has this evolved over the years? Has this has this been kind of a growing thing or did it did it kind of explode all at once? What's the what's the story behind this whole industry? I would say it's a very growing thing. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to be with Cases for just about six years now, which is the vast majority of the lifespan of the organization. So, oh. you know, I, I've been privileged to kind of see how this has evolved over time. And, you know, I can say that when, when the ISS National Lab was first created, I think that there was a, a notion that overnight you would just have all of these companies and researchers that are like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to send research to the space station. Uh, <laughs> But that wasn't the case, you know, and I think that we've re realized that and recognized that very early on here at CASIS that the companies didn't know that they could access station. The researchers didn't know they could access station, let alone why they would want to access station. What, I mean, what, what could I learn in microgravity that I can't learn in my own lab? So the first couple of years of, of the organization was not only standing ourselves up, trying to figure out who we are and, and how we fit in this overall space station landscape, working with NASA, but also trying to work with the research community to let them know why they should want to take advantage of this space station. So it took a couple of years to really help build up that notion of demand. And, you know, now we're starting to get into the golden years of the space station, as I like to say. And so last year was a perfect example where we had, uh, you know, and many thanks to our, our partners over at SpaceX and Orbital ATK, you know, we had a terrific year of continuous research to and from station. And from that, you're really able to see a lot of the fruits of the labor of of the hard work of NASA, of the CASIS team, along with our commercial partners like, you know, Nanoracks and Space Tango, who are equally kind of bringing in their own research. And so the demand portion has kicked up exponentially over the last couple of years. And, you know, part of it's, a, you know, a derivative of having some recognizable commercial brands that are now starting to send their research to station. Mm -hmm. And part of it's also just, you know, over time, uh, you know, enhancing how it is that, that we that we put together our, our, our pitch and, and educate people on how they could take advantage of stations. So it's been a process, but I, I would say that it's been an incredibly fun and unique process for all of us to be involved with. And, you know, now we're really able to to, again, kind of enjoy the fruits of the labor. Yeah, exactly. This is, I mean, if you think about it, it's all kind of new, right? I mean, you think about things going to space. That, that's mm -hmm. a that's a NASA thing, right? You know, you're you're talking about space agencies, international partners, like these these big time players in the space world. But now, you know, now you're going to open it up to so many different people to mm -hmm. to actually send stuff to space and the space industry itself. I I, I see it all the time, just constantly growing and people talking about it. It's it's kind of cool. To, to see this thing kind of 
kind of grow, expand, and 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 mature, I guess. Well, and you know, on top of that too, I mean, it's funny. I was reading an article the other day where they were talking about the emergence of the suborbital research community, and you know, I, I, one of the things that we talk about with suborbital research is that it might be a great precursor to setting the foundation for even better research on the International Space Station. So, hmm. you know, you now even have that uh, that community that is now part of this quote-unquote space race, if you will. So there's just so much activity that's going on right now, both from a NASA standpoint, a space station standpoint. You have all of these commercial launch providers that are now starting to get into the mix. I mean... You know, you have to you have to sit there sometimes and say one of the reasons that they're all getting involved is because they see the opportunity, they see the demand is beginning to swell, and that space in the space station is uh, is very indicative of that. Yeah, I, I like the way you say it too. It's kind of like the golden age, but you know, with competition comes innovation, so mm-hmm. that's that's kind of exciting as well. Um, so you know, kind of leading, I guess, leading into that is is the kinds of research that we're seeing now that this this industry is maturing and and people are sending more and more things and there's recognizable players in the research space. You know, what kinds of research are can we see go through cases and and occur on the International Space Station? So you know, again, it it really spans all scientific disciplines but you know as as we're kind of forecasting into 2018 you know i guess it gives me a good opportunity to plug some of the research that we're expecting to have go up hopefully in a couple of months on uh, the next spacex resupply mission okay and you know it, it really it, it it's kind of a diverse set i mean so we have research that's looking at wound healing we have research that's looking at metabolic activity tracking uh, we're going to be having two new facilities that are going to go on station that help to enable further research uh, one of them is going to be kind of an updated centrifuge. And so that centrifuge is going to be able to to you know have research almost be side by side. Maybe you have one that is, you know, reacting how because of microgravity, but then you have a centrifuge right next to it, and maybe you're trying to create conditions that are similar to what it's like on Earth. So you you have this, you know, these these two differing types of investigations that are now happening right next to each other, and you're not you're not having to do one research on the ground simultaneously with another one in space to see kind of you know what the reaction difference is. Now you got them right next to each other, so that's kind of a cool. Uh, cool principle for researchers to take advantage of. Another research platform that's going to go up is it's called the MISI platform, but it's going to greatly enhance materials research investigations on the space station. So, you know, those are two new facilities that are going to be going up, uh, again, adding to the already very diverse amount of facilities and research that's possible. Uh, we even have, uh, you know, student investigations that are going to be going up, some looking at genetics. Uh, and then NASA's got a wide variety of payloads that are going to be going up, too. So, I mean, there's just there's there's an awful lot that's happening right now. Um, I also want to say plant biology research is going to be another fixture that's going to be involved in this upcoming mission. So all sorts of stuff going up. Yeah, definitely. We actually had a couple, you know, things come back from on uh, SpaceX 13. You know, when mm-hmm. you're talking about uh, research going up, and then you know some of it kind of stays there, some of it burns up, some of it comes back. There's there's plants that were actually on SpaceX 13, right? There were plants that, yeah, there was there was a couple of different plant biology experiments that went up, uh, one from an academic re- institution and then one from a very recognizable commercial brand. Uh, it, but, you know, I think that, 
you know, plant biology research is is a is a great example that it spans all sectors. You know, NASA has been doing plant biology research on station and on shuttle for years. I mean, you know, the Veggie Project is is something that has gotten great visibility uh, as astronauts try to get beyond low Earth orbit. They're going to need to harvest or, or create their own food supplies. Uh, so NASA has been involved in that. But then you have uh, academic researchers who are looking to just kind of ask those basic questions of how do plants react when you know you no longer have uh, gravity as a variable which ways do they grow why do they grow that way you know what happens uh, when you when you don't have that much sunlight on them you know how do they react but then you also have commercial companies that are now sending uh, plant biology research experiments to station with the intention of improving agricultural processes here on the ground uh, but you know again it's 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 really hitting on so many different areas now. I mean, again, it's it's whether it's government organizations, academic researchers, commercial companies, and all of that in some ways is kind of what you want with a national lab. You want a variety of thoughts and ideas for how to tackle various types of research. Yeah, definitely. I think well, Veggie is a great example because Veggie is a is a facility, right? So right. it's 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 a place where if you need to do plant research, this is where you're going to do it. It's one of the places on the space station where you could do it, and and it's just from you know kind of playing with plants in space that they've come up with all right we're going to use we're we're going to use lights these led lights and we're going to use these things called pillows and they're going to grow in these pillows where it has all the soil and nutrients and nutrient delivery system and then they just came up with this place and now boom if you want to if you want to grow a plant or see what happens to a plant this this is where you're going to do it Mm -hmm. and uh you know the the one you said before was uh, outrageous red romaine lettuce that was actually the first time that americans ate uh lettuce on the mm-hmm. station that was pretty cool that was pretty cool <laughs> well and and you know it's so projects like that bring i think great visibility for you know exploratory purposes but then there's also a lot of projects that are that are happening on station that have kind of a dual usage or uh, you know nasa and and cases in the iss national lab working together in partnership and one of the ones that uh, that that just came back to was a rodent research investigation where you know think of nasa as kind of being the uh, the leaders of of, of the rodent portion of it, and then the National Lab uh, working on kind of the research side of it. So uh, the Houston Methodist Research Institute partnered with pharmaceutical giant Novartis, and uh, it, they were looking at implantable chips in rodent research, uh, again, with the, with the hope of, of ultimately improving life on Earth, whether that be through, through cancer uh, uh, understandings, as well as things like osteoporosis and, uh, and diabetes. Whoa. Okay, so it's 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 a device that can actually be implanted and and kind of help out with that, right? Right, and and hopefully better monitor uh, conditions within your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we and then we had also you know speaking of something like that, we also had another one that just came back down. Uh, there was a, a glucose biosensor that uh, that was looking to improve day to day diabetes management. So the efficacy of uh, of insulin being you know disseminated into the body to make sure that it has max potency. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of like, you know, a lot of these medical kind of industries kind of in the, in this space, right? Uh, yeah. Right I now. would say, you know, think about it like this too. It's almost, you know, like low hanging fruit, if you will. Uh, so we, we see an awful lot of pharmaceutical companies that have been involved in life science research on station. But again, a lot of that kind of predates the, the, the national lab concept and, and was really kind of hearkening back to the research that NASA was doing uh, specifically on the astronauts living and working in space. And then, you know, some of those, some of those basic understandings uh, now being passed over and a lot 
allowing the, the private sector to be able to take advantage of some of those early findings and now incorporate that into their research. They can hopefully create uh, therapeutics or drugs that can, that can improve patient care here on Earth. Nice. All right, so so the uh, the glucose biosensor one, that one was I, I saw a picture of it. It's like super tiny, right? It can fit yes. on your on your finger. So, Just a little guy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my question is, how what what about microgravity makes the space station a good place to test that tiny little sensor? So it's not so much the sensor itself, but I think that it was more focused on the fluid flow of, you know, kind of of, of, of shooting out uh, that insulin and making uh. sure that it's, it is as efficient as possible. So, you know, you send, you know, you send this thing up with, with its, the insulin or, or a mock-up thereof, uh, and again, kind of see how that flows in a microgravity environment, it, again, done with the intention of, uh, of really maximizing every time that it kind of shoots out into your body. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Making sure that it's consistent, right? No matter where it is or what you're Not doing just consistent, or... but, you know, that it's it's also giving you the most powerful and most effective kind of uh, shoot so that that way, you know, it gets into your blood as fast as possible and uh, you're able to kind of go about living your life in a normal capacity as opposed to, you know, maybe, maybe waiting 15 to 20 minutes. Maybe this is going to be much more instantaneous into your body. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of cool studies. I, I am the, another one on SpaceX 13 that I'm thinking of. Um, they, they're actually trying to manufacture uh, fiber optic filaments, right? And try to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, if you it, it, like space manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess they're, are they trying to build a, a space manufacturing kind of industry, and and or just kind of test its capability on Earth and kind of the same thing, right? Make sure it's as powerful, as consistent, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, our partners over at Maiden Space, they they are also f uh, quite famous for having the 3D printer on station. They kind of wanted to take that next step into looking at on-orbit manufacturing capabilities. And okay. so, you know, that's that's kind of where you're looking at uh, at fiber optic technology, which you know could potentially uh, in enhance, uh, you know, I guess the. A lot of the things that might be happening within the advanced communication or um, you know DoD type communities. Uh, so you know, Made in Space was looking to see you know how these filaments react in a microgravity environment. Can I grow them you know it, more purely so that that maybe it's something that is grown in space or you know harvested, if you will, even though it is fiber optic technology. But then taking that back down to Earth and actually selling that. Um, so yeah, I mean, how how can we use the space station as an ever evolving platform, not only for research but also again for on-over manufacturing capabilities. It really is kind of an interesting way to think about the space station as, as we continue to move forward. And there's going to be other companies that are equally looking to do similar types of on-over manufacturing capabilities in the future. And that's that's almost, again, that's when we're talking about the station, that's what makes it so exciting right now. It's not just research, and it's not just, you know, uh, the, the, the commercial companies that are sending research up are academic researchers, but it's companies being able to leverage microgravity to enhance their business findings and, and you know, validate why it is that we need to continue to have a commercial presence in low Earth orbit, potentially beyond this space station. That's right. You know, one of, my, one of the things that always comes to mind when it talks about, like, growing stuff in space uh the the thing that I'll, i always think about is protein crystals because that mm -hmm. was kind of that one was kind of i guess you can call surprising because they actually grew differently and i guess you can say almost more perfectly because the, they didn't have stuff weighing down on them is that was it a positive finding that it's a very positive finding yeah. so um you know there's there's a 
a variety of, of companies that have been doing protein crystallography research or academic researchers that are looking at protein crystals. And I think that you actually kind of hit it on the head. You know, in, in a microgravity environment, you're able to grow crystals in a more uniformed or perfect manner, uh, which would potentially allow for you to dig in and better understand the genetic makeup of, of some sort of a, you know, a protein. Um, and you know, I, one that comes to mind for me that uh, has has gone up multiple times is we have uh, partners over at Merck Research Laboratories, and they have sent three separate, I want to say, protein crystallography experiments, and uh, it's being done with the intention of improving the efficacy of Keytruda, which is an FDA-approved drug that you that is that is now done for uh, for cancer patients. And so, right now, even though the drug is already on the market, if you go and you know you get shot up with this, you're basically in the hospital for an entire day. So mm-hmm. what uh, Paul Reichert, the, the lead researcher over at Merck, is trying to do with these protein crystallography experiments is grow these crystals at a, at a better uh, rate, a, a larger rate, so that, again, he can dig into the genetic makeup of these of these proteins uh, and, and find a way to uh, improve the potency of this drug so that instead of you as a patient being in a hospital all day, you know, maybe you just go see your doctor and he gives you a shot and 10 minutes later you're walking out the door, 30 minutes later you're out playing golf. I mean, you know, it, it's about trying to make your life a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, so cool stuff like that with a protein crystallography experiment. But yeah, again, it's it's really trying to to uh, make things a little bit larger so that you can dig into them and and look at genetic structures of, of proteins in a new and novel way. And microgravity, it's not to say that you can't do protein crystallography on the ground, but it, microgravity has shown the propensity for having uh, much larger crystals because again, you, you know, you're you're no longer having the push and pull of gravity as a vector. Now you have microgravity around you, and it really allows for these crystals to grow in in much more of a natural state, so to speak. Super cool. I love it. Um, you know, so so you got things that are actually growing, I guess, more perfectly, and you you said larger in space. But I know that uh, using the space station can actually make things a little bit less expensive too. I think the good example is is uh, is satellites actually mm. launching satellites. Yeah. Do you guys work with uh, with companies to launch satellites from the space station? So there is one company in particular that that we work with who uh, you know. Not only do they have rack space on the space station, not only do they have an external platform on station, but they also have the ability to to send cube satellites uh, into low Earth orbit from the space station, and uh, that's a company called Nanorax. Cool. And so we work in partnership with them. Um, all of their research that flies to the ISS flies under the ISS National Laboratory Manifest, hmm. and so uh, we work with them to identify you know which cube satellites they want to send, uh, why they want to send it, and the time frame behind it and so you know that's that's a perfect example of it's not just cases as you know going in and securing research it's some of these partners like a, a nanorax or a space tango uh, who are are working with uh, researchers and equally kind of talking about why it is that they would want to send their research to station or jettison their research from station and so uh, nanorax is the entity that, uh, that we work heavily with who is responsible for uh, again deploying those cube satellites and they're called cube satellites because they are much smaller than like a satellite that you would normally think about, right? When you think of satellite, you think of like this giant floating dish in the in <laughs> low Earth orbit, right? But they're they're much smaller. They are much smaller. Uh, you know, think about it as you know your your satellite being housed in a shoebox. 
and that oh, shoebox just being shot out of the space station. And you know, maybe maybe it gets a little bit bigger once it gets outside of the the, the, the space station parameters, but uh, maybe it doesn't as well. I mean, it, it just really depends on what the researchers are looking to try to do um, and and how big they want to go. So, what do what do these small satellites do? What are they capable of? Wow, uh, you know, what aren't they capable of? You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 so. You know, I think when you think of satellites, the typical idea would be, you know, Earth monitoring in some capacity. Hmm. But, you know, there was one that went up, by, I want to say it was on SpaceX uh, CRS-13 or uh, Orbital ATK-8, but it was uh, actually E. coli was put in a in a satellite and sent into oh, yeah. uh, low Earth orbit to kind of see how it reacts and morphs in a microgravity environment. Uh, but, you know, obviously it's, it's being jettisoned away from the space station. So I don't really know what the findings of that were, but uh, something like that's pretty doggone cool where you know it's it's not just you know true satellite technology but you know now you know sending life science into in, in a cube satellite and seeing how that uh, reacts in the extreme environment of space sweet that so there's this like this fleet of shoe boxes just kind of circling around <laughs> here that's what i'm imagining i don't know <laughs> But yeah. they're all doing all different kinds of stuff right they, they're doing they, they are doing all sorts and, of cool work yeah 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 very cool all right. Uh, yeah, lots of different lots of different research going on, and CASIS is kind of at the center of that, kind of managing this back and forth of research going up and down and all around. So, so that's awesome. Um, I did want to kind of end with uh, this cool contest that you got going on right now. Do mm-hmm. uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Right. So, you know, I, I, I get the, I get the fun job, I guess, where, you know, I get to go out and talk with you about research at a very high level. Uh, but then also I get the opportunity to work alongside some some truly unique partners who can bring great visibility to the space station. Um, and also, you know, I think that one of the areas I forgot to touch on earlier was that one of the key functions of CASIS in the National Lab is to help inspire and engage the next generation of scientists and engineers. Mm. And so uh, every year what I'll typically do is I'll work with a unique brand to develop one mission patch that represents all ISS National Laboratory research. So last year, for instance, we worked with Lucasfilm, who developed a Star Wars-themed mission patch, which was pretty doggone cool. All right. uh, and then in 2016, though, and this is kind of where, you know, long-winded response, where we're kind of getting with this contest, uh, in 2016, we partnered with Marvel, and mm. they developed a mission patch that featured Rocket and Groot from the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. Cool. And so it what I was hoping to try to do out of that was not just have a mission patch, which brings, you know, some some awareness to the space station, but is there a way to create an actionable item that we can take from this mission patch and, and spread it to the masses? And so what we ended up doing is working with Marvel to create a STEM competition uh, that is focused on Rocket and Groot and the characteristics associated with them. So we now have a contest that is live uh, for students in the United States aged 13 to 18, and, you know, they can just simply go and 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 submit flight concepts on the characteristics of Rocket and Groot, and you know, for instance, you have Rocket, who is general innovation and uh, you know enabling technology development, material science. But ah. then you have you have Groot, and he is kind of like the personification of plant biology or regeneration. So students, you know, how how could how could you do something on the space station that's focused on uh, regeneration or, or seeing how plants or something like that react in space? So, you know, we're really trying to encourage students to to think about their favorite superheroes in a, in, in a new and different way and equally link that to how the space station could uh, could create some fun STEM opportunities. 
Cool. Okay, so they're 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 designing research for each of these teams, or is it like a set a set thing that they have to accomplish? Like, what's the what's the whole contest? So the the contest itself is actually fairly basic, where it's truly submitting a white paper. Oh, okay. You know, if if you want to, if if you're interested in uh, material science and you know thinking about you know how rocket would would uh, want to do research on the space station, you know what would you send to the space station? Why would you send it? What could you learn that you can't learn here on Earth? Uh, conversely, you know, if if you're a fan of regeneration, you know, like you know, how can microgravity enhance regenerative medicine? Um, you know, submit a concept on what you want to send, why you want to send it. I mean, it's it's a really it's it's basic, yet at the same time, what we're going to end up doing when the contest is done is we're going to select two concepts, one from Team Rocket, one from Team Groot, and we're going to turn those concepts into actual experiments, and they will launch to the space station later this year. Oh, sweet. Yeah, there's your actionable item, right? An actual an actual thing that a student designed that is going on the space yep. station. An actual an actual item and and you know the cool thing for the students too is they're going to have the chance to, you know, not only, you know, put this concept, you know, together, but they're going to work alongside uh, our, our hardware partners, our engineering friends to to make this, you know, something that, that can truly be turned into an actual experiment. So, you know, you're going to get an awful lot of practical application if you're a young student. And, uh, you know, I can't think of a better thing to put on your resume than to sit there and say that, you know, over the summer or over the second semester, I got a chance to put together an experiment that flew to the International Space Station. <laughs> Man, I wish I could put something like that on my resume. That'd be cool. <laughs> well, there's a reason why you know I went to a state school and not a not a smart person school. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I, me too, man. I'm a I, I'm you know marketing PR kind of uh, kind of major too. So yeah, so I look up to these guys for sure because what they can accomplish is is just astounding. And Absolutely, especially to get students involved this early. You know, because because if I had known you know there was a, a rocket and Groot kind of contest and I could submit something, you know, maybe I would have went the science route. I don't, well, looking back. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I, I'm happy I don't know where I am now. I'm happy where I am now. But still, that that's it's just a it sounds like an amazing opportunity. It does, and you know, I guess I guess I have to actually give it a, the the official title for the contest or the challenge is the Guardians of the Galaxy Space Station Challenge. So, oh. um, and if I'm doing shameless plugs, then um, you know, if you are a student, if you're a teacher and you want to pass this over to your students, if you're a parent and you want to pass this over to your child, uh, you know, I would say that uh, go to what go to the following website, uh, spacestationexplorers.org backslash Marvel, and uh, you'll be able to find uh, not only information on the contest, but you'll also be able to find examples of research that's been done, both from a materials uh, science standpoint, technology development, and then also plant biology regeneration. So it's kind of a one-stop shop that, that is able to uh, to provide as much information as possible for the students to be, uh, to be dangerous and submit their concepts. How long is the contest going on? I wish I could say it's going to be going on in, in like you know infinitely, but it's not. Uh, we, it's going to be pretty quick turnaround. So uh, the contest runs until the 31st. So we oh, have okay. uh, about a week and a half to go. So, but uh, again, it's what I would say is that it's a pretty basic submittal process. So uh, you know we're not asking for the moon here. You know we're we're asking for a couple of paragraphs, and uh, you know who knows maybe your paragraphs are going to be the one that, that gets selected, and uh, you could be that lucky person that gets to to watch your payload fly to the space station, and uh, you know we can go and spread that. That to the masses and and let people know uh, all the cool research that's possible on station. Yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah.
yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have to turn this uh, episode around real quick so we can get this out so uh, <laughs> so we can get it out during the contest, but give people a couple extra days and, and a little extra promotion for it. That's so cool to send stuff to the International Space Station. Among all this other great research that's already up there and constantly going up and down, uh, like you said, the golden age of research on board the International Space Station. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on and talking about the National Lab and, and just explaining how this whole process, how this whole, I could say industry at this point, uh, how this whole thing works. So I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, Gary. This was a lot of fun, and uh, we touched on a lot of different subjects, and hopefully we didn't confuse everyone too much. <laughs> I don't know. I, I love this. So this is this this is definitely my world, so I really appreciate it. And we'll kind of reiterate those uh, those um, those links that you said at the end there uh, after, after the credits here. So uh, once again, thanks, Patrick, and uh, good luck with the contest. Thank you very much. Happy Friday. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Mr. Patrick O'Neill uh, about cases and everything about the industry that's kind of growing, as we talked about during this uh, during this podcast. But at the end there, uh, he was talking about a contest that's going on right now, so I'm going to kind of start with that. So again, that uh, link that he talked about is spacestationexplorers.org.org slash marvel. Uh, you can go there, and then they kind of give the outline of the contest that's going on and what you need to do to to submit uh, your proposal. And as uh, as Patrick said, the white paper. Again, that contest is running through January 31st, so make sure to turn those around pretty quick. Uh, you got a couple more days, but it's a it's a pretty cool contest. And then at the end of it, you may get to have your research proposal turned into actual research that goes on the International Space Station. That's pretty cool. So if you want to learn more just about uh, CASIS in general, because they say, you know, we talked about a lot of the research that's going on uh, all the time, going up and down. That's iss-cases.org.org. And that's uh, that's their website. You can find out um, just more about that industry uh, and then or about that um about that business, a little bit more about the industry too, uh, but then all the different research that's going up and down. Uh, so on social media, Casis is at ISS Casis, Twitter is at ISS underscore Casis, and Instagram is at ISS underscore Casis as well. Otherwise, you can find the in- follow the International Space Station, as we say, almost every show, that's International Space Station on Facebook, and then uh, at Space underscore Station, at ISS, uh, that's uh, Twitter and Instagram, as we always uh, say. And then on the ISS accounts, if you use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform, uh, you can submit an idea for an episode of the podcast or maybe ask a question. Uh, even if you do, honestly, we've done it before. We've seen questions and said, hey, that would be an awesome episode. Actually, I think the Spacesuits episode. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, a couple of them. And, and I think we have actually more coming up. Uh, just make sure to mention in the hashtag Ask NASA that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. So this podcast episode was recorded on January 19th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman and Greg Wiseman and the folks at Kennedy Space Center, Lord Mathers, everyone over there. Thanks so much for connecting uh, me and Casis, me and Patrick today and uh, making this all come together. And thanks again to Mr. Patrick O'Neill for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.